Romans chapter 8. This very, very important chapter that we're going to look at tonight. I want you to notice the first verse. Got a lot we want to cover. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And what does that mean to walk in the flesh? Because first off, there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That sounds pretty good. We sing, and can it be? And it was saying the one verse, no condemnation, now I dread. So there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. But notice it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What does it mean to walk after the flesh? If we, and if we do not define this correctly, we're going to be very confused as we go through this chapter. And it's very important that we get this because a lot of people teach a lot of false doctrine from Romans chapter 8. People who uh, believe you can lose your salvation, they'll use stuff from Romans 8, even though many would agree that the end of Romans 8 is a very strong eternal salvation passage. Not eternal security, eternal salvation. Like we were talking about before, church, eternal salvation, everlasting life. It's an everlasting life passage. Without a doubt. But they will, uh, they'll ignore that part and they'll misdefine what it means to walk after the flesh and use it to prove a saved person can lose their salvation. But if they're a Baptist and they know, well, you know what, you know, as Baptists, we're not allowed to go against the doctrine of eternal security. So therefore, we're going to you know, teach that if you're walking in the flesh, it's probably because you just didn't truly get saved. You didn't actually repent of all your sins like you were supposed to. And the truth is, if you're walking in the flesh, you're not saved. But again, what does that mean to walk in the flesh? What, is, what, what does that actually mean? Because most people think it means, well, if you're just living for the lust of the flesh. That's what most people think it means. And if that's what it means, this passage creates all kinds of problems. That means carnal Christians, as some people would call them, or people who aren't very good Christians, that there is condemnation for them. And they're in Christ Jesus. So we've got, we've got to make sure we define this correctly. And let me tell you what it means to walk in the flesh. I'm going to tell you what it means, and then I'm going to prove it. From Romans. Okay, from Romans. One of the, again, one of the mistakes people often make in Romans is they will teach a doctrine, and they will stay in that one chapter, and they ignore context from the previous chapter. So here's what it means to walk after the flesh. It means to try to achieve salvation through the works of the law. That's what it means to walk after the flesh. It doesn't mean you're living for carnality and just giving in to all this debauchery and stuff. No, it means you are trying to achieve salvation through the works of the law. That's what it means. And we would all agree that if you're trying to attain salvation through the law, that you're not saved. And so, so it's important that we get that. When we get that, when you understand that, there are no problems anywhere in Romans chapter 8. None. But let me prove to you that that's what it means. So, first, first off, and I'm just going to kind of hit some highlights. There's a lot of places we could go previously in the book of Romans. But remember in Romans 2, what Paul said, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. I'm not going to read the rest of that passage. We all know it, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Why did he say all these things? Because they had this idea that if they did this work of the flesh that was according to the law, that they could achieve salvation that way. But Paul said, no, here's how it works. If you go by the law, you have to keep the whole thing. That's the way that works. But then he went on to show that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody can achieve salvation through the law or through the works of the flesh. I mean, don't make me preach Romans 1 through 7 again, okay? But that's what he, I mean, we clearly established those things. In chapter 4, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the, flesh, to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Remember, he's speaking specifically in the previous chapter. He mentioned he was, how he's speaking specifically to those who are of the law. And he said, if Abraham, our father, if he were just, uh, as pertaining to the flesh, what did he find as pertaining to the flesh? 
He didn't get saved by the works of the flesh. He didn't get saved by the works of the law. He was saved by believing. So he covered that in chapter 4. In chapter 7, in verse 4, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. When you are trying to follow the law, that is something that you do in your flesh. And you know what you achieve every time? Death. Condemnation. And, that, and anybody who is trying to get saved by their works, they are walking after the flesh. Anyone who is trying to even add works to faith, add works to what Jesus Christ already did on the cross. They are walking after the flesh. And that's what probably what most Christians are trying to do today, or quote Christians are trying to do today, is they're doing a faith and works. And it doesn't work that way. Paul already established that too. We're not going to go over that again. But he says in verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. Verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Paul could not find any way to do good according to the law. Paul could not find any way to do good according to the flesh. The only way we can do it is by the Spirit. That is it. And we do that by believing in Christ. Because in our flesh is no good thing. Verse 25, Romans 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. So we talk about this in chapter 6. We reckon ourselves saved and clean by believing on Christ. So what do we do? What do we call it biblically when a Christian sins if we're not going to call it walking in the flesh? Because I'm telling you, walking in the flesh is trying to achieve salvation through the works of the law. That's how Paul used that term. We don't just get to take a term Paul used and attach our own definition to it. We have to use it the way Paul did. Paul is explaining people who are trying to achieve salvation through the works of the law. And guess who he's going to talk about the next three chapters after this? Who's he going to talk about? Israel. Why? Because they were trying to achieve salvation by walking in the flesh, by the things of the law, by keeping the law. And you know what he said? They didn't find what they were looking for because they sought it by the works of the law rather than by faith. So it's so important that we understand that. So we shouldn't say if there's a Christian that's living wicked that they're walking after the flesh because that's not what it means according to the Bible. That's not the same thing. What we could call it is what we see in Romans 6, 8 when it says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Where does sin reign? Where can we let it reign? In our mortal body, because we've not put on immortality yet. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So you know what we should call it when somebody is yielding to the things of the flesh? We could call it yielding our members instruments of, un of unrighteousness. You know, what? but what many people are calling it today is something that, you know, they're using a phrase from the Bible, but it's not the way that Paul used it. We could call living sinful when we don't have to. We can call it letting sin reign over us. Whenever there's a Christian that's out there and they're saved, and yet they are giving in to their fleshly desires, their carnal desires, 
that person is allowing sin to reign in their mortal body, mortal body, and that's a problem. That's wrong. God's going to deal with them. God's going to chasten them. But let's not call it walking after the flesh. So most people use Romans 7, especially in these liberal churches, to have kind of this victim mentality for why they keep sinning when it's actually te- teaching the opposite. He's like, how to do that, which is good, I find not. You know, and they just kind of use that, man. I, you know, and then they'll just talk about how sinful they are. And, you know, and they do it in this way, like, man, look how humble I am. Look how bad I'm just trashing myself right now. But in reality, it's like a feel-good speech about why they're doing so much carnality when the truth is, Romans 7 is teaching us you don't have to sin. You're, if you do, you're just letting sin reign in your mortal body. Don't do that. And so walking after the flesh does not mean living for the lust of the flesh. That's not what it means. It means trying to achieve righteousness by the law. So now what we're about to see in this next chapter, no, it is. If you have the wrong definition, if walking in the flesh means just living for the desires of the flesh or yielding your members, servants to unrighteousness, or letting sin reign in your mortal body, these are the ways Paul actually put it, then it's going to create all kinds of problems. Or it's going to be something, too, that some Calvinists could teach some kind of hardcore perseverance of the saints doctrine. But when we have a clear definition of what it means, it's not a problem. What we're trying to do is we are trying to teach exactly what Paul was teaching tonight. We're not trying to just force this passage into our theology. And often, too, people who are right about eternal salvation, they often do weird things with this chapter, trying to preach what Paul preached while misdefining what it means to walk after the flesh, yet teaching eternal salvation at the same time. It's, it's very cringy and painful to listen to. But again, once we have this definition down, there's no problem. So, Again, the key to butchering any chapter in Romans 1 is pretend every chapter is a new subject and ignore what has previously been discussed that has set all this up. So Paul has made it very clear if you are trying to achieve the law through the flesh, through the circumcision, through the works of the law, you will fail. You know why? Because the law worketh wrath. The law brings condemnation. The law will condemn every one of us. But if we will believe, if we will have faith, we will receive that imputed righteousness that Abraham had. And so now here we are in chapter 8, now that we've established what it means to walk in the flesh and walk in the spirit. Notice what it says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. No condemnation for us. None. None, None at all. And those walking after the Spirit, it's not those living a sinless life. It's those who have believed on Christ who are depending on Him for salvation rather than keeping of the law. These are people who repented, not of their sins, but they have repented of their unbelief. They have repented of their dead works that they were doing in order to achieve salvation like the Jews. And they have believed on Jesus Christ and accepted the free gift of salvation. Those are the ones walking in the Spirit. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We actually fulfill the law, not by keeping it, but by walking after the Spirit. Because you know what we're doing when we walk after the Spirit? What Paul said in Romans chapter 3. We're actually not making void the law. We are establishing the law. We are admitting all of the law is good, but we are also admitting Jesus is the only one who kept the law, and our salvation is through His work, not our own work. We're the only ones that actually submit to the law. We're the only ones that actually still agree that the law is good. We're we're the ones that do that. We're not like a lot of these liberals that are out there too who still add works of salvation just act like, wow, that was just for another dispensation. No, all of the law is good. All of it. 
but it all condemns us as sinners. And so when we recognize that it's, that it's all good, it causes us to believe on Christ because we, have, we, we realize how many transgressions we actually have and that He's our only hope. But because most people aren't preaching the law today, they think, ah, I can be good enough. Boy, if people actually taught the whole law, they wouldn't be thinking they were good enough. Not, not, even, not even close. So verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Meaning, they're going to go after things like the circumcision. They're going to go after the things of the law. All the things that they do. That's what they are going to, And that's what happens every time we go out soul winning and we ask somebody, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. I go to church. I've been baptized. That's the things of the flesh. That's things that they do. What are we looking for? People who are going after the Spirit who are professing faith in Christ. So they that after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. We're going to talk about Christ. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death. We think being carnally minded means, again, going after the fleshly things. Going after the sinful things. No, it's just referring to the things of the flesh. Earthly things. But to be, and, and, and to be carnally minded is death. Because if you're going after the law, you will die. You will fail. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We rest in the fact that we're saved and on our way to heaven. So minding the things of the flesh are the works of the law. Minding the things of the Spirit is believing in Christ. And later, when he gets into the subject of Israel, again, he explains they didn't obtain righteousness because they sought it by the law rather than faith. Israel walked after the flesh rather than faith. And the law always condemns because the wages of sin is death. And so you could say someone living for carnality and debauchery you know, I mean, you, you could say they're clearly walking after the flesh, but so are those who are living for the law as well. You know why? Because the super religious grandma that goes to Mass every Sunday and does her confessions, she comes short of the glory of God too. And so does the guy out there living for drugs and alcohol and fornication, all those things. He comes short of the glory of God too. Both of them, both of them are walking after the flesh. So, but at the same time, Paul, was, you know, the guy living for debauchery, he's not really trying to achieve righteousness where the grandma going to Catholic Mass is. But she's still going to come short because she's minding the things of the flesh to get her there rather than the things of the Spirit. So verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't get your flesh to be good enough to go to heaven. You can't do it. And, and the carnal mind is enmity. We don't, think, we don't think right. We don't feel right when it comes to those things. It's just not going to work. It's against the things of God. It's against the things of the Spirit of God. And so in your flesh, you cannot do anything that's pleasing to a holy God. Only Jesus could do that. And what did God say about Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I would rather get in on his record, try to get in on his record, than our own record. Because God, we, we cannot please God in our flesh. So Paul has already established the fact that if we follow the law, we're required to keep all of it. And no one can succeed on this path. And people do. They get confused in this chapter because they think walking after the flesh is about living for carnality. And it, it, that's not the case. So verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And we can't be gods without the Spirit of God. And I think the reasons are obvious. And he said, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So is the body literally dead and unable to sin? Of course not. Remember what he said in chapter 6? We're to reckon it to be dead. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if this means our body is physically alive, but we just don't sin anymore, just understand that would mean Paul completely contradicted himself 
in Romans chapter 7, you know, going from Romans chapter 7 to 8. And he didn't do that. So, he's, so verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. And I don't believe this is talking about something He's going to do in our, in our future you know, at the rapture. I don't think this is a reference to glorification. I think He's just showing that if we have the Spirit of God inside of us, He will quicken our mortal bodies so we don't have to you know, live in debauchery. We don't have to live just allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies. We have the ability to say no to these things. So therefore, brethren, and listen, I've been the first one that's like used this term in a bad way before. Okay, Don't go back and fact-checking other messages I preached in the past when I went to these passages. I'm sure I probably have. But at the same time, it is important we get this right. So verse 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, meaning trying to be righteous by the law. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And we do this when we repent of our dead works and believe on Christ. And so, again, to interpret it this way, or to interpret the way most people do, it completely contradicts everything Paul's taught so far. This is the only thing that makes sense, that's, that's consistent. And it is. It's not even just that it makes sense. No, this is what Paul's been saying. This is what Paul has been teaching. Because specifically you had the Jews who gloried in their flesh. And Paul, in other places, he talked about they mined earthly things. They, they made the circumcision. Uh, they tried making a circumcision, a part of salvation. Professing Christian that, that, were, that were former Jews. They even, they even tried doing that kind of thing. And that was a great heresy that the, the apostles nipped immediately. Thank God for it. So it says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So those who have believed. Because how are we trying to get to heaven? We aren't doing things of the law, but we are trusting in Christ. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And man, I, I shouldn't go to this, but I love this passage, and I, I don't think we talk about this enough. But turn to, I, I think it's Isaiah 56. I don't have this in my notes, so I might regret trying to go here. Isaiah chapter, yeah, let's look at this passage right here. And, and this is so important too. When you understand you know, Paul's dealing with a church that's, that has Jews in it, you know, who, you know, are saved. But again, the Jews as a whole, they really struggled with this, you know, getting over the, using the things of the law for salvation. Gentiles didn't have any problem with this. It was the Jews that struggled with this. And notice, and notice he said that we haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't know much about Jewish manners and customs and all that stuff, nor do I always know for sure if I trust what I hear from people when they say that. But you, I've heard people say many times that in Jewish culture, you know, you could disown or disinherit, you know, a physical child. But after, but if you adopted one, you couldn't disinherit them. That's what they would, that's what they would say. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it would kind of make sense when we look at Isaiah chapter 56 when it says, we'll start reading in verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. This is talking about strangers, eunuchs, people who at one time would have been kept away from the things of the temple, the things of God because of their, their position. He was saying, Let him not say that anymore. For thus saith unto the Lord, unto, or, the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So notice what he's saying. I'm going to give them a name. These ones who come, these eunuchs, these outcasts, 
He said, I'm going to give them a name better than that of sons or daughters, one that will not be cut off. This is a good eternal salvation passage right here, too. Look what it, let's keep reading. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Remember when Jesus quoted that passage right there? He said, well, this seems to have some Old Testament connotations here because it's got the sacrifice and things in there. And it did, but remember when Jesus came, there weren't people from all nations there. There were only Jews and they were unacceptable. And so what did Jesus do? He brought in a new and better covenant. And this new and better covenant too, it's one that when you get in on this covenant, just like if they would have been able to get in on that covenant, your name will never get cut off. And what, and that's what happens when we get saved. What Paul's showing us here, we have received the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of bondage. So in other words, if we get into the covenant through the law, then there's fear because we could be cut off. But if we get in on adoption, you know what? There is no fear in that because when you receive the spirit of adoption, you're his forever. You, we weren't always his. You hear people say all the time, we're all God's children. No, no, we're not. But let me tell you, once you become a child of God, you're a child of God forever. And so we have, there's comfort in that. And we don't have fear because of that. So verse 6 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the law does not tell me I'm a son of God. The law condemns me. But the Spirit, it's the Spirit. I know I'm saved, not because my works match up with the law, but because my faith lines up with the promises of God and the Holy Spirit that God gave me, it tells me that I'm saved. Not the law of God. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. And it may be that we suffer on this earth, but that's okay because a better day is coming and it will be worth it. And you know, I don't think I'd be wrong in saying that it is very likely that in Christ's kingdom, there will be many in that day who will probably wish they'd suffered a little more on earth. When they're seeing the rewards that they received for the little bit of suffering they did do, like, man, I wish I'd have suffered a little more. When they see those who did suffer a lot and the rewards that they received, I think all of us will probably wish we did a little more suffering. Okay, now we're, you know, American, Gen Z, all, all that, you know, we're all victims now and act like we can have a right to give up on God because of that. But, man, that generation is going to regret it when they stand before God. I believe if we had a more biblical mindset of things, we wouldn't mind doing a little bit of suffering. Paul definitely didn't. Paul gloried in tribula tribulations. But what do we do? We, we want to quit. So, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So notice his reckoning again. This is, this was his, this is the way he thought. This is the way we're supposed to think of things. This, is, this was his outlook is the way we often say it. This is the way we should look at things. And, and it's important to have that same outlook or to reckon things the way Paul did because the devil will tell you it's not worth it. When you suffer, the devil will tell you it's not fair. It's not worth it. But no, you know what you should do whenever you're suffering? The worse it stinks, the more excited you ought, to, you ought to get about what's to come. That's how you need to think about it. It's like, man, I'm going through a lot of tribulations right now. I don't like it, but man, it's going to be good when we get to the other side. That needs to be our thinking. And if you're thinking that way, you're not going to want to quit. You're just going to want to keep going. It's going to motivate you to just keep pressing on and keep moving forward. So verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. And we are, we're waiting for the glorified body that doesn't sin. We don't have it yet, for sure. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So while we are saved 
And while we are not under the bondage of the law, we currently are under the bondage of corruption in our body. Okay? And if you don't believe me, just wait a little bit and you will eventually die. You know why? Because we still have, we're, we're still wearing corruption. We're still wearing corruption and it stinks. We don't like that. And think about it, even lost people, even lost people dread the thought of death. And that's why we have this transhumanist you know, uh, mentality today. You've got all these people that are trying to find a way to live forever through science. When what they should just do is believe on Christ. But unfortunately, and, and, it, and it's pretty amazing. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord tarries is coming if they get pretty good at it to where people are living you know, really long. But, he, but even then, I mean, do we ever think there's going to, do we think anytime soon there's going to be a quality of life when you're over 100 years old? Probably not. And even then, what's 100 years in comparison to eternity? It will never be enough for these people. People want to live forever and, they, and people, they, they don't want to die. And that's normal. That's fine. It's actually Christians that don't mind as much because we understand a resurrection is coming. A better day is coming. And so we, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we gro- ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We're looking forward to that day. You know, we don't want to die. You know, we don't really want to die either. I'm not, I'm not afraid of death in the sense I'm not, I am not afraid of what's going to happen after I die. But, uh, but at the same time too, I don't want to die right now. I, I would do just about anything to keep myself <laughs> from, from dying. You know, I have a survival instinct like, like everybody else. And so, but it, but I'm looking forward to that day when I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, and not only do I have a survival instinct too, but part of the groaning that we do is our worry and concern for our loved ones. Because one thing that would that could get me to end my life is to save the life of somebody that I love. You know, my wife or my children, especially. You know, I would I would definitely die for them because the thought of losing them is a devastating thought to me. And I'm looking forward to the day when I just don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm looking forward to that. Even if, even if I know my child is in heaven, I, you know, I can't imagine the hole that it would leave them being gone. And, I, I, and, and that's a painful thing, and it's a reality that many good people have had to live with, and, you know, and that it's very possible any of us might have to live with that kind of thing. But at the same time, thank God we have hope. Thank God we sorrow, but, but not as others which have no hope. So verse 24 says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For when a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And why does he say this? It's because the reality is, physically, nothing changed physically when we got saved. But we did get a guarantee that it will. Okay, now, something changed on our spirit for sure. Our spirit was resurrected. Our spirit was regenerated when, when we got saved. But we're waiting for the redemption of, of our body. We're looking forward to that day. And it's a hope and it's a blessed hope. And I'll say this before and I'll say it again because I want to brainwash you with it like people have brainwashed you to the contrary. Many people think the blessed hope is the hope of an imminent rapture that will save them from all their problems that they have created for themselves on this earth. When the reality is the blessed hope is the promise of a changed, new, glorified body that's like Christ and without sin. That's, that's what it is. And we hope for that. We have, it's a blessed hope. And we're waiting for it. I haven't seen it yet. I, don't, I, I, wonder what my, I, I don't know what my glorified body is going to look like. I don't know, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm waiting for it. So verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And boy, this is 
really important here. But I, I believe every Christian should stay focused on the will of God. But just understand, nobody does everything exactly right. Y'all understand? Nobody does everything exactly right. Have you ever, and, and nobody's going to want to admit this, but have you ever looked at another Christian that was doing a bunch of stuff that you know is wrong, yet it seemed like God was still blessing them quite a bit? Have you ever looked at those people and thought, man, why is God blessing them? They're not doing this. They're not doing that. They're, you know, they're not doing, you know, you know what you're doing? You're trying to measure them up with the law. Okay. And, it, and listen, if God has shown you and you have been convinced that some things are wrong, then you should not do those things. I don't care if other Christians are doing it. Okay. You need to keep doing what you're, what you're supposed to do. But at the same time, Anybody else could do the same thing to you. They could look at things in your life, measure it up against the law, and find areas where you're, where you're failing. And so the reality is, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, we would all be in big trouble. The Holy Spirit okay, and the, the blood of Christ, all these things that God has done for us, they make up for all our shortcomings. And we have them. This is why it is a very dangerous thing it is a very confusing thing. It is a very misleading thing when people will call someone's salvation into question based on their works rather than their profession. That is, that is, not a, that is, that is a very confusing thing when you do that. Because again, the blood of Christ cleanses all sin. The Holy Spirit, you know, He still indwells us in all these areas where we have shortcomings. He, can make up, he makes up for those things. We don't even pray. Are you, do we really think God's impressed with our prayers? Listen, a holy God cannot be impressed with our prayers. But when we have the Holy Spirit and we pray and He makes intercession for us, that's going to be a good prayer. You know, I know what our prayers sound like. And we might think they're pretty good, but they're not. But the prayer that I would like to be able to hear, and I probably couldn't handle it, is the one that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf as He makes intercession for us. I mean, uh, that's something that we can't, in fact, we can't express it because he does it with groanings that cannot be uttered. So, you know what? So I'm not very good at praying. You know what? Go ahead and pray because the Holy Spirit's really good at it. He's so good at it. We can't even put it into words and he makes intercession for you. And I kind of like the sound of that. I've heard, I've had some people that are really good prayers, do some prayers for me that when they got done, I was like, man, I, I felt pretty good after that. But you know what? Nobody can pray like the Holy Spirit. Nobody can do that. So let, let Him let him help you pray. And He's not going to help you pray if you're not praying yourself. So just, just go ahead and do it. And, so it, and uh, so it says, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And that's important too. Because our prayers are often according to our own will, but he makes intercession according to the will of God. And that's, that's good. The last thing we want is complete and total control of our lives because we would mess everything up. Some of the prayers that I am most thankful for are the ones that God did not answer. There are many things I have earnestly, fervently prayed for that God didn't answer. And after t some time went on, I realized, man, it's a good thing God didn't answer that prayer. It's a good thing God didn't give me what I wanted. But you know what? God did give me what I needed. Thanks to the, thanks to the Holy Spirit. And so he get, answers those He makes intercession according to the will of God. And so verse 28, we all know this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God's not going to give us everything we ask for in the way that we ask for it. But he will always do a work that will lead to good. God has a plan for us, and that is for us to be like him. And this was his predestined plan. This is what God predestinated. When we see this word, okay, the Calvinists, they just see it and they run with it and they attach it to whatever they want it to be attached to. Let's just attach it to what Paul was talking about. And it says, for whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Did he predestinate certain people to be saved? Or did he predestinate, what is it, his plan before the foundation of the world, that those who are saved 
be conformed to the image of a son. That's a lot different than what the Calvinists are saying. This is very specific what he is dealing with here. But Calvinists, they just broaden it into God literally predestined everything, including murder and perverts. And it's just, I don't know what to do with those people. But verse 30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And notice those three terms. Called, justified, glorified. All done by Jesus, not by our works. All by Christ. So what would be the conclusion that we could come to after all of this? After everything that we have read in Romans 1, 1 through 8, what conclusion should we come to if salvation is not about the works of the law, but it's about faith? If the law condemns all of us, whether you're some Greek reprobate or whether you're some decent Jew, and we all come short of the glory of God, but after we've determined that, you know what, Abraham, he wasn't saved by the works of the law. In fact, he got saved before he was even circumcised. David also understood, blessed is the man on whom God imputeth righteousness without works. If salvation is not by the works of the law, if salvation is only by believing on Christ, if Christ makes intercession for us, He ever lives to make intercession for us, if, if the wages of sin is death, and that debt has already been paid for by Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the one who predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, if He's given us that promise, and He's given us that hope of a brand new glorified body one of these days, if all these things are true that Paul has been saying, and he wrote these things by the Holy Ghost, they are true, what could we conclude from all this? What would be the logical conclusion after we put everything together that we've talked about in these last eight chapters. Well, I like this. He says, what should we say then to these things? All these things he's been talking about. What should we say to these things? You know what? He's, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Like forgiveness, compassion, mercy, pardon. We could go on and on. Look at what all the things that God did to give us everlasting life, to give us eternal salvation. Look at all the things that He did so He could just give us those things freely. If there is anything that is needed to keep us saved, what wouldn't God do to make that happen? And you know what? He's already did it. He's already did it. We have Jesus Christ that's interceding for us. We have the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us. So, folks, there's nothing we can do to, to lose what we have received. There's nothing we can do to lose what's freely been given. And here's another thing, too. I mean, now, nobody can, nobody can give any example in the Bible. This is another challenge, too, I like to give to people who deny eternal salvation. Show me anyone in the Bible who ever lost their salvation. There's no examples. Okay? There's no examples of anybody ever losing their salvation. But let's just say, let's just say, theoretically, there was a sin that if you did it, you would go to hell. Okay? So, for example, what if, you know, people always come up with these scenarios. What if a saved person blasphemes the Holy Ghost? What if a saved person becomes a homo or something like that? Well, listen, theoretically, if doing those things would mean automatic hell, then you know what? If God did all the things He did to save us, wouldn't God do something to keep us from doing those things? Like maybe take us out first? <laughs> or do something to just stop it? I don't believe God will let us do those things. People bring, well, what if a saved person takes the mark of the beast? Look at all God did to save us. You know what? I think He can give us what we need to keep us from taking the mark of the beast. I'm not brave enough. I think I, I, think I would give in. Well, you don't need the courage right now, but let me tell you, if you do need the courage, if literally 
inserting a microchip in your hand would make your salvation go away and you're saved, God's not going to let that happen. I believe that. I believe that with I believe that with all my heart. I'm not worried about it. Now, I I would for sure be worried about what I might potentially do in a situation like that. But I am not wor- but I'm not worried because I believe if theoretically I am ever in a situation, theoretically, y'all understand what I'm saying? I'm saying theoretically, if there was ever in a situation where a, a, something could physically be done to cause me to lose my salvation, God would protect me from it. If he was willing to send his own son, he's going he's gonna to take care of us. He's going to keep those things from happening to us. So I'm, I'm just not worried about it. I'm not worried about it at all. And so verse 33, I love this. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Well, I don't know these people, they won't give up their sins. Pastor can't meet them. I don't know about these people getting saved and can't find them in the church. Wait a minute. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Are you really going to charge them with you know, failure to attend church and use that as proof that they're not saved? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It sounds like you're charging God's elect with a violation of the law. That doesn't work. Hey, now, I, I wish everybody get in church. I'm aggravated when people don't, when, when saved people don't go to church. I'm aggravated by that thing. But who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? How do you get around that? What are you going to do with that? Well, you know, if they were saved, stop. You don't have Bible on that. We have, in fact, we have Bible to the contrary of it. Why don't you just let God do a work in their heart? Why don't you just give them time? Why don't you just stop trying to fit, you know, figure out who all saved and who isn't saved and just keep preaching the Word of God the way the, the, way the Bible you know, says salvation is, why don't you just keep preaching that instead of doing that? But, I mean, charging, leading charge to God's elect is foolish. It's God that justifieth. Did Jesus do something wrong? No, He didn't. So, who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Are you really going to condemn somebody because of their sin when Jesus already died? Yea, rather, that is risen again. He paid for their sins. He rose again. And He's making intercession for them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love of God that we received is, is it's in Christ Jesus. We didn't get that love because of our works. We didn't get that love because of our works or because of our walking after the flesh and accomplishing some things that impress God. No, we received that love because of what Christ did for us and nothing can separate us from that. Nothing. And folks, I don't know how you can be any more... You can't be more clear than this passage right here. You can't get any more clear than this. Yet there are so many people out there teaching someone can lose eternal salvation. Doesn't make sense. It is so far from the Bible. And it is sad that people will even use passages in this very chapter to teach that. Because they don't know what walking in the flesh is. You know why? Because they are walking in the flesh. They are trying to receive salvation through the law. And you know what? They're the ones that are under condemnation. There is condemnation for them. You better believe we can lay charge to these people. And not only could we lay charge to their doctrine, which we, which we could, but we could lay charge, we, we, we might as well just lay charge to their sins too, because they're all sinners too. And what's funny, a lot of these people act like they're not sinners. Like they don't sin anymore, which is just ridiculous. But no, we can condemn them with literally any sin. We can condemn them because if they didn't get circumcised on the eighth day, we could, we could condemn them for that if we wanted to. It doesn't matter. So walking in the flesh is trying to obtain salvation or obtain righteousness through the law. Following the Spirit, walking after the Spirit, is about believing on Christ for salvation. Those who have believed on Christ have nothing you can try to condemn them with. Those who are going after the law, 
can easily be condemned. No condemnation for believers in Christ. And I believe Romans 8 is probably the strongest eternal salvation passage in the Bible, yet people use it to cast doubt on people's salvation based off a bad interpretation of what walking in the flesh is. And it's important. That, folks, I'm telling you, more and more and more, I am realizing the truth and the importance of saying things the way the Bible says it. I'm not trying to nitpick. I'm not trying to be divisive. But you better, I am working in my own personal life on making sure I speak biblically about these things. Because it is a fact that we have created all these theologies. We have created all these positions on things. We've come up with all these extra biblical terms to explain things. And if we would just explain things the way the Bible does, if we would use Bible language, it clears everything up. Everything makes sense. And we would, we would laugh at somebody that you know, tried to accuse us of not being saved because we're walking in the flesh. You know, when, and they're making that mean because you're like doing sins in the flesh. No, that's walking, in, walking after the flesh is trying to achieve salvation through the works of the law. That is not what we're doing. We're like Abraham, to him that worketh not, but believe it. So yeah, you can talk about my performance of the law all you want and you can give me an f grade and that's just fine i'm not i'm not even trying that method i'm walking after the spirit meaning i'm believing on christ i've I've repented of the dead works and have faith in him so that is romans 8 he has given uh, very i mean crystal clear salvation and uh leaving no room for doubt Absolutely no room for doubt. Anybody that's going to try to teach anything contrary to what we have taught, what Paul has taught in Romans 1-8, through 8, let me just, just mark, mark it down. Mark it down. I'm, again, I'm seeing this more and more. They're going to keep using extra-biblical terms. They're going to, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, repent of sins. You know, where are you find, that phrase is not in the Bible, yet people say it all the time. Think about that. They say it all that. Why don't we just say things the way the Bible does? It, it, it ends the debate if you do that. Why is there even a debate about repent of sins? Because we've accepted theologies. We've accepted all these extra biblical terms. We've allowed them to come into our vernacular and we're saying things that don't make sense and are confusing people. But you know what? The words of God, they always register. They always agree and they harmonize with the Spirit of God. But the, and with the word with the word of God, they always do, and so we've got to we've all got to work on this. We've all got to work on this, and I believe it will make it will make a big difference in our lives. So with that, let's pray, dear Lord. I thank you so much for this wonderful chapter and just the wonderful clear truths that we see in it. We thank you for eternal salvation, uh, Lord, and we do. We uh, I'm, I'm thankful for just the extra assurance this study through the first half of Romans has, has given me, Lord, it's just, it gets me, um, gives me more confidence and it gives me more boldness to just want to go and, uh, not only tell as many people as I can about you, but to just, uh, defend, uh, what we, what the doctrine of salvation to those who are out there, uh, perverting it, just confusing it. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to, uh, pra- uh, continue practicing, telling others, but also just defending, uh, your word and what it teaches on these things in your name we pray. Amen.